You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, Interstate Batteries has thousands upon thousands of retail locations throughout the United States and they have an awesome website interstatebatteries.com that will allow you to do your own research on a variety of batteries that they offer. I mean these guys are responsible for tens of thousands of batteries and these guys are very knowledgeable about batteries because it is what they do right interstate batteries right so if you have any questions about specific batteries you can go visit their website interstatebatteries.com or you can visit one of their thousands upon thousands of retail locations in the United States and talk with one of their battery experts. Interstate batteries, outrageously dependable. All right, everybody, happy hump day and welcome to another edition of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Today is the last episode in my Texas trilogy is what I'm calling it the Texas trilogy I've done three podcasts well I've done four technically but one of them is just a BS session this is the third podcast that I've done uh, with Alan Robinson and he is the general manager of the Lazy CK Ranch and we discuss how the operation works how the ranch works all that kind of stuff uh, about the high fence operation we bust some myths we talk about things that even i was wrong about in some of the previous other podcasts and uh, it's just a a real good educational podcast about how it's done down in texas right and how the high fence operations work and again i keep getting reminded um, by all the listeners of this particular podcast that not all of texas is high fence right this was my experience this is what i had my experience with Uh, and so this this is what i'm podcasting about right i i can't podcast about any anything else because i don't i never experienced it right so that's what uh today's podcast is about i wanted to get alan on and get information right from the horse's mouth and um you know so this is one of those podcasts where it's not me um assuming this is actually information coming straight from uh, a guy who lives breathes and works uh, down there in Texas so uh, and who's involved right he has uh, he has skin in the game as far as uh, how the operation works and whatnot so really good uh, really good podcast now prime bows before we get into this podcast I got to do a commercial about prime bows telling you right now I love their bows I love them and this is what I this is what I tell everybody though right uh, some bows are for some people some bows are not for those people right so if you want to go shoot a different bow go shoot a different bow you gotta you gotta shoot what feels comfortable right you gotta shoot what you feel comfortable with and I have found my home with prime archery man I'm telling you right now they are uh, they make really really good bows high quality equipment i love their draw cycle i love the no shock in the hands after you squeeze the trigger or you know after you fire and um it makes a good bow makes other products shine like the arrows that i'll be using the broadheads that i'll be using the the ripcord arrow rest that i'll be using and when you have all that in one package it makes you feel very confident in uh, in the timber uh, or on the landscape that you whatever landscape you're hunting in i'm telling you right now man i i love shooting my prime and uh the the engineering 
that goes behind this bow um, from the functionality of you know standpoint of it is just awesome as well so go visit primearchery.com and whenever you're looking to purchase your next bow um, i think it's only fair to uh, give prime a shot right go shoot one of their bows if you like it you like it if you don't you don't but at least go give it a shot because uh uh man i'm telling you i think you'll i think you'll like it once you go and shoot it so uh primearchery.com website blah 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 let's get into today's it's the 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 finale of the texas experience right the texas trilogy with alan robinson of the lazy ck ranch all right on the phone with me today mr alan robertson how you doing man i'm good how are you i'm doing good man doing good um i tell you what uh, I had an awesome experience down there in Texas, but the one thing that I took home with me was a bunch of chigger bites that have yet to go away. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wild out here for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I think the best kind of way to kick this off is, is just kind of go over, uh, I want to say, kind of at a high level, talk about why you're on this podcast because this is kind of the third podcast of a three-part series um the the first two podcasts that i did were with mark kenyon uh the very first one was me talking about what my you know what i thought my experience was going to be hunting at uh you know in a high fence uh, ranch that had exotic exotics there the second one i went over my experience that i had there and then i thought it was only fair to get you guys on to talk about how the ranch operates um, talk about the details talk about the cwd testing uh, so forth and so on because as i learned uh, going to your ranch i feel there's a lot of misconceptions out there about um, high fence ranches um, and uh, like the guys at the ranch were telling me there's a big difference between high fence hunting and there is and canned hunting right so I just wanted to I just wanted to get you on and uh, kind of get your side of the story of how this all works yeah that sounds good I'm excited I, I listened to the the previous two podcasts too and I, I have some maybe some thoughts on that and they've changed over a few uh, over the last few days after i've listened to the last one too so yeah, yeah. i'm excited cool all right so the first thing i, I want to get into alan is why don't you talk a little bit about what your role is and what you do at the lazy ck sure yes sir i'm the general manager of the lazy ck uh, and, and as you said we're a seven thousand acre high fence hunting ranch in the hill country and you know my job duties as a general manager are are, are really um <clears throat> everything i mean uh, you know here at the top I, I work we work for some really great owners that live in pennsylvania they always wanted to to own a place like this and sold sold their businesses and and bought it and um, we've done a lot of work to get it up into it. They actually combined two ranches at where you stayed, the lodge, the main lodge and the, the headquarters area was only 4,600 acres. And then he talks the guy behind us into, into selling more land. So he, he wanted over 7,000 acres, um, you know, just like, you know, bucket list type thing. And, yeah. and he did it. And, and so, um, uh, then they hired me to, um, to, to get it up and going to, to, you know, create a very successful, you know, experience. And that's really what we, the hyphen stuff doesn't, it never really actually crossed my mind until I started listening to, to you guys. We, we, I never felt the need. We, we, we don't ever feel the need here to like justify what we do. Right. right. And, um, it was, that was, that was such a great, um, experience listening to your, your podcast before you came and then the one with Mark after you guys left, um, because it was, it was it really got me thinking about a lot of things, but anyway, so that's, that's my job. So as the GM, I, you know, I, I dinner with you guys and I set the groups up and, and we run the, we run the business of, of the range. Yeah. And let me tell you this. Um, I've never been to an outfitter before, um, outside of, I guess what, what my experience with you guys is right so i've never had anybody cook me breakfast in the morning i've never had anybody you know make my meals for me you know take me to my uh my hunting locations you know basically cater to my needs and 
you know, that's completely different than the way I hunt. But I will tell you that the the facility or the the operation that you guys run there is really really well put together. Well, I appreciate that. That's that's I'm really glad to hear that because we we have a really good team here. You know, we have seven full-time employees and some contract employees. We have an intern here from A&M that's getting a degree in wildlife biology this summer. And we really all pulled together as a team. So I'm, I'm really thankful to hear that. I'm yeah. glad you had a good time. Yeah, it was, it was, it was awesome. Um, now let me ask you this uh, running an operation like this. And well, let me, let me take a, let me take a step back because you said you didn't really feel the need to explain yourself and i think the only reason that this kind of conversation is happening is because of like i mentioned in some of the other uh podcasts that i've done is this culture it's so different than what let's say the north uh deals with or even the southeast has to deal with because i feel like in the southeast there's a lot of hunting clubs uh guys are you know sharing leases with a handful of other people uh, up north yeah we may use outfitters we may lease land or hunt on a lot of public and i think that um it's great conversation anyway for you know you to talk and me to talk and to have this conversation to maybe break down some walls you know, maybe get rid of some misconceptions, maybe just educate people on how this all operates. So, you know, and like I said before, I think people tend to judge what they don't understand. And this is a, a great opportunity for people to understand what the hell's going on. Yeah. Hey, and I, I 100% agree. You you hit the nail on the head two podcasts ago where, where you, you know, you and Mark were having this conversation and you said, look, I, I believe um, this isn't going to be an exact you know, Dan quote, but yeah. I believe that you have to experience it, um, before you can judge it. And yeah. I thought, you know what, that's, that's perfect. That's a, that's a really a good life lesson really. And, um, but I'll, I think I can offer a unique experience too, because I'm from Kansas. I grew up wh- whitetail hunting, quail and pheasant hunting in Kansas. I went to Kansas state. Um, I, I didn't know about these, you know, when I got to Texas after college, it, it, it was, it was really like, um, well, first it was an eye-opening experience from the perspective that, I mean, I grew up hunting public land or private land. I grew up in an ag community, um, and uh, it was just what you did, right? right? And so you get down to Texas, and, you know, something like 98% of all the land in Texas is privately owned, you know, uh, where even in Kansas around the lakes, like in Iowa around the lakes, that's all public or core land, you know, and here, you know, guy, guys own all the way up to the lake or all the way up to the river, to the middle of the river. And it was just, it was really kind of um, eye-opening. So I've got to, I, I've experienced both how I grew up. Right. And then when I got here and I got to see how these guys operate down here. But what I thought was, oh, cool. That's how you guys do it here. All right. Well, that's, um, that's neat. I, you know, it didn't, I didn't, I didn't know about these things either. Yeah. Um, and then in our business, we get, we get people from all over the country. We get people from all over the world that come in and hunt here. And, um, so, you know, you guys were talking about maybe in Alabama, they use dogs, right? Well, yep. they do. We have a group from Alabama that come in and they're, they're pig hunters that come in from Alabama and they, but they talk about how they whitetail hunt with dogs, deer drives, things like that. We don't do any of that here. None of that. We don't do deer drives. We don't use dogs to, you know, kind of wrangle game into your, in, you know, into your shooting lane or something. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not judging that. I'm just saying that's, that's. Like, I want to go do that. You know, I want to yeah. go do that. I want to come to Iowa with my bow and I want to sit over, you know, a big corn patch and, you know, shoot a native Iowa deer. And um, I think that's all cool. I heard a guy say, one of my best friends, we were listening to your podcast and he said, this isn't the only way to hunt. It's just a way to hunt. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. before we kind of dive into the details of uh, you know, how your operation or how you guys operate. I want to, I want to ask you what kind of led you to this general manager position? I mean, um, what was attractive about this job? Well, I, I have a, you know, my background is in agriculture and then I got a few degrees in finance and financial planning at an MBA. And I was, you know, kind of in the, in the corporate world. And I really wanted to get back to doing what I love, which was being outside. I'm, you know, obviously you, you have to have a lot of that if you're going to work, 
you know, on a ranch. And so I started a range management company, as a matter of fact, and, and that's how Chip, uh, that's how our owners found us. And, um, uh, it just kind of evolved from there. I never really thought like, I never, you, you probably like a lot of things in your life, you never set out and say, I want to be the general manager of a large scale, you know, huge hunting operation. Maybe you do. I, I didn't, I just, you know, like most people in life, you just kind of find your way through it. But I had, I guess I had the education and the skills necessary to do it. And, and man, I, I tell you, I feel really bad for people that don't love what they do because I love what I do. Yeah. That's a fact, man. I tell you what, I, uh, I got laid off. I think we discussed about, discussed this a while, while I was there, but I got laid off from my job. And the first question I asked my, uh, that popped into my head was, do I have enough time to do another podcast today? Because I wasn't, <laughs> you know, like I wasn't even really like sad that I got laid off. Yeah. I was worried that I had to make sure the financial side of things work, but I'm just like, here's my opportunity. You know what I mean? And I love doing what I do. I love talking to people every single day about hunting and fishing and the outdoors and whatnot. And, uh, so I agree with you 100%. Yes, sir. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, today, uh, four or five o'clock, I'm going to go change, grab my bow and go, um, try to try to shoot a black buck. I've been, you know, that's what killed me too. When you were talking on your podcast, man, and you said you had an 18 inch black buck walk out in front of you, which I, I believe when, when you're a bow hunter, anything that walks out in front of you is right. a trophy, right? Like right. I'm not scoring anything, right? It, right. It's just, it's just a, a whole different experience. Um, but I've hunted, Oh, two or three times a week since January with my bow. And I haven't, I've been busted a couple of times. Um, the wind wasn't right or whatever. Um, no, just a couple hours, like, you know, just kind of messing around hunting, I guess, yeah. you know, I really want to shoot one, but, um, and you, you were talking about how you had that black buck walk out in front of you and I almost threw my phone. I was like, <laughs> dude, you, you, you should have, you should have sent an arrow on that guy. That's right. awesome. Yeah. I, and, and, looking back on that experience, I wish I would have, because I, I honestly, I was, I don't want to say I was confused, but I was in such a, like when you move a fish from one fish tank to another, it doesn't know what it's doing quite yet. And you, like, that's the first time I'd ever seen an animal like that. And, uh, um, uh, and I just, I guess I just was in observation mode at that point, but I tell you what, uh, if I ever had the opportunity to do it again, I probably, I, you know, I would definitely shoot at something like that. Yes, sir. Yeah. And you know, uh, the other thing too, and, and you guys touched on it a little bit and it's kind of a perception that we're trying to change here too, but you guys are talking about the menu and, and how that's kind of maybe a little gross, you know, it's, a, it's just a little taboo, like a, and, and Mark, thank God I listened to that podcast too, because we got to take the guarantee off. Certainly if you're a rifle hunter yeah. and you, you, you tell me, Hey, I, I really want to, to try to harvest a needle guy. Obviously, you know, that our guides are going to do everything, whether right. it's spot and stock or safari style or whatever, we're going to try to get you that animal. But when you're a bow hunter, um, we really have to do a better job of trying to maybe, um, change expectations for people that come here that just says, Hey, you might really want to hunt a black buck. And you're, there's a good chance that you're going to have a chance to hunt a black buck or, or at least sling an arrow at one, but don't be afraid if that scimitar or that black Hawaiian or that Neil guy walks out and it's in your budget, you know, send the arrow because you might not, you might not have another opportunity at your black buck. So, so have an open mind when you come here, because we don't know what's going to come out. We have no idea. And, you know, it's, I guess that's, there's a lot of symbols there to, you know, public or, or low fence hunting too, because you don't know. Right. Right. And so I think this is a kind of a good transition into this is let's talk about this, this high fence, you know, because one thing that I was completely mm -hmm. taken back off or back on when I showed up was that yes, there's a high fence, but it's around 22 or 2300 acres. So why don't you talk a little bit about, um, the pastures and kind of maybe, I don't know, give your take on, you know, maybe breaking down the quote unquote high fence mentality. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, well, like I said before, you know, I, I never really thought or felt like, you know, we had to justify 
who we are and what we do. Like, like I said, you know, it's just a, it's another way to hunt. As a matter of fact, I have an analogy for you. I, I, I thought about it over the weekend, if you're ready for it. Yep. Um, uh, so in Texas, just like in Kansas City, um, barbecue is a big deal, right? Right. And, and I think that that is, um, uh, I think that I've had really good barbecue at Dinosaur Barbecue in upstate New York. And if Tim's listening to this, he's going to laugh and say, yeah, that place is awesome. So <laughs> my previous job, I, I've traveled all over the country and all over the world. And I've had really good barbecue and really bad barbecue everywhere. Well, when it comes to the process of barbecue, um, you have, we, we have options now, right? So I grew up. And, um, and I still cook this way a lot of the time, but on the old style pit, get your fire going, get your air right. And you're messing with it constantly. And you're 16 hours out there messing with your brisket. The temperature goes to 300. It goes to 170. You're trying to keep it at 225. Right. And that's, that's the, that's the, that's one option to, to cook in a really, really nice brisket, you know, in Texas, they, they take the brisket very seriously. Right. Just like in Kansas city and North Carolina. And so, um, and so then, so then, you know, technology starts to catch up to the, to the barbecue fad and craze, right. It's not a fad. It's a craze. It's something that's never going away. And, and like, you know, the big green egg comes out and that's 10,000 year old technology with the ceramic cooker, but they perfected it. And, and so now you do have to get your fire going, but it's a lot easier because once you get to temperature, you, you get too hot, you bring it down with your, with your airflow and, um, you can maintain a 225 for 10 hours, right? You don't have to open the lid. Um, you might have to control the air a little bit, but you can walk away for an hour, do something else, come back, check it. Yep. You're still good, but you're, there's still a process there. Right. Right. And then you go to like the pellet electric smoker type, excuse me, um, grill where you plug it in, you put it on 225 and you, you can literally go to the movies and come back and your brisket's done. Yeah. And, um, that would, that, in my opinion, that would be sort of the, the, the canned type, um, um, hunting, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't want, I'm not saying anything bad about any operation. Okay. Everybody has their way to do it and everybody loves how they do it. Um, but I, I kind of think that we're, we're like the big green egg. You still got to get your fire. It's still hunting. You still got to get your fire going. You got to get your air, right. You got to get your temperature, right. It is easier. There's no question. You, you, there, you have, you have a better opportunity to, um, make a really good brisket than you would, uh, just opportunity than you would on like an old style pit. And, and, and so I think that we're, we're kind of the big green egg, the high fence operation, um, here certainly is, uh, because of our size is, is sort of like the big green egg, you know, the ceramic style cooking method, if, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, again, kind of going back to everybody has their own way of doing it. Everybody likes doing things different and, you know, I want to, I want to make a statement and I want you to tell me, um, whether or not you agree, uh, with it or, you know, say, well, that's not the case or whatever. At the end of the day, right. Your clientele are probably not the listeners of this podcast per se. And what I mean by that is, uh, again, just kind of, uh, you, it's like, you really don't care what people who are never going to visit your ranch have to say. Well, yeah. So we're not, um, we're, I, I don't feel like it's our mission to, to pick the flag up and carry it up the hill for all the high fence hunting operations and say, you guys are wrong. You know, da, 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 da. You need to, you, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, our terrain, you know, might be 7,000 acres, but it hunts like it's 10,000 because the elevation changes and the trees and the canyons and all of that stuff. I think that people like most things in life, if you, you know, well, uh, you know who the smartest guy in the world is, Dan? Who's that? The smartest guy in the world is the guy that says, I don't know what I don't know. Right. 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 Um, and, and so I don't feel like I never really felt like it was our, our challenge to change the perception of the high fence hunting. All we say is if you think that it's, it's really easy, then get your bow and come hunt with us. And, and you'll see just like you did, you know, Hey, my perception changed on our, what I thought I was getting into wasn't the case. Now, are you going to have a better opportunity, just an opportunity to see an animal? Yes. 
there's no question, you know. So in that perspective, is it maybe easier? Um, it's still hunting. I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe it's easier. You're gonna have a, you're gonna have more opportunities to see more animals in front of you. But does yeah. that make it easier? Um, and I don't know if if um, you know, like well, and like you said, you know, you're here three four days. Uh, you don't really have the time to come down here and set up your trail cam and scout trails and you know, put your blind up with, with, you know, facing your prevailing wind and, you know, monitor animal. We do all the work. Okay. We do the, we do the, the, the grunt type work and, and then you guys get to come here and hunt. And that's, that's who we are. So like I said, I I haven't really, until I listened to your podcast, I never really thought about, um, you know, Hey, we, we have to try to change the perception of high fence hunting. Um, and I'll tell you too, and you met him, you know, Miranda's personal PH Zach uh, was here guiding um, from South Africa and I'm going to South Africa to hunt with him in August. And we were talking a little bit about this and he said, Hey, uh, you're hunting 40,000 hectares with me in South Africa for 10 days, but there's a fence around it. Right. And I said, yeah, well, but that's 40,000 acres. And he said, yeah, but you have 7,000 acres. So um, you know, just stop worrying about it. And I, yeah. I said, well, I never really did worry about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I had that conversation. I think I was listening to you guys talk about it and it's, uh, um, again, yeah, Africa, certain parts of Africa are all quote unquote high fence too. So, yeah. so let me ask you this, um, cause I want to get into some of the details. Um, why don't you talk to us a little bit about your, and I think, Correct me if I'm wrong, the native pasture and the genetic pasture and what they are and what the differences are between them. Okay, so um, uh, we'll start maybe in our native pasture pastures. Those are pastures that we have, we that since the operation has started all the way back before our owners owned it, um, you know, from from the beginning of time, from the beginning of when the high fence went up. Um, there were, there had been no deer maybe moved in. There's been no genetics introduced into those pastures. So they're, they're quote unquote, you know, typical native hill country, you know, Texas whitetails. And, um, and it was just something that we, we have a need for. It's, it's kind of funny when you look at the, the trend lines of what people want, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, it was all about the junk, right? It was all about the non-typicals. And now everything's kind of moving back towards, we want the more typical looking, you know, typical looking deer, the way we grew up hunting, you know, I want, you know, I want the experience of like, maybe, you know, remembering what it was like to hunt in my tree stand in Kansas, you know, when that typical nice eight came out, I don't care about these, these are clients. I don't care about, you know, size so much as I want the typical, obviously, you know, a nice 10 or a nice 12 or a nice eight. But, but, you know, one guy even told me, he said, I would take a nice wide eight over a junky looking 10 all day. And, and so we, we've really tried to preserve that, that experience for people. And, um, but then you still have, you know, you saw the, you saw the deer hanging on our walls um, in our lodge that were harvested here, replicas of the ones that were harvested here. And, and they're more junky, they're wide, they're, you know, you know, 250 plus um the freaks and and there's the freaks and there's yeah. still there's still a need for those there's still there's still a lot of guys that want to hunt those although i gotta tell you as a side note um that whole thing is getting really really crazy man and they're they're like they're growing over 400 inch plus whitetail now in pins and dropping them off on places and um you know harvesting those animals and and it's like you know it's 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 crazy um so anyway so uh, so in the native pasture going back in the native pasture native pastures uh um we've tried to keep we have kept that that experience maybe more wholesome for the guys that really want the typical texas whitetail and um and then in our in, in in one of our pastures in our front pasture with the headquarters is the the twenty five hundred acre pasture. Um, this is where all the genetics came in, and um, this is where the genetics have come in. And now for the last couple of years, um, there's been no new in, uh, genetics introduced. We've just been breeding in the pastures. We don't have deer breeding pins here. We're not growing them up to two years old and letting them out. Um, but in the past, they have maybe purchased deer from other breeding facilities in the state and brought them in, turned them out in the pasture and said, let deer go be deer. 
and they'll breed and they'll do their things just like they do, you know, outside of the fence. And, um, and that really creates a, um, it creates a really good experience, but it's also pretty challenging too, because now you're into heavily, um, you know, conservation practices, calling practices, management practices. And so it's, it's a lot more intense, uh, in the, in the genetic pasture. Gotcha. Um, and, and then we have one that's, we have one that's mixed. We have a, you know, a 2,100 acre pasture that's, that's mixed. It's, you know, it's had some genetics and there's a lot of typical looking native whitetail in there. And, um, um, uh, it's where you guys hunted mostly actually. Okay. So we're just trying to, we're, we're just trying to create an experience for people, um, that, uh, that, that love to hunt. Um, but, you know, maybe have four or five days a year, um, you know, as we get busier and busier and busier and public land is shrinking and there used to be like, so even 20 years ago in Texas, like everybody and their brother grew up with, um, oh, we have a deer lease. We have a deer lease in South Texas. We have a deer lease. And now those are all going away too. As the absentee landowner comes in, I mean, everything's going to an operation. Everything's going to a service. The, the, the deer leases are going away. It's not like it used to be where, you know, dad and I had a deer lease in Del Rio, 10,000 acre deer lease. And we would love going out there and we love the process, right? Building your fire. We love the process of putting our deer feeders up and putting our cameras up. And certainly, you know, we all love that process of doing all of that. Um, but it's the, the land availability is, is getting um, very scarce. And yeah. so you're going to come hunt here or you're going to come hunt in Iowa or Alabama or something like that. Um, or you're not going to hunt. Yeah. All right. So I want to, I want you to elaborate a little bit of, um, cause you mentioned calling deer management, all that stuff. Um, what is your goal from a, uh, calling, a calling point of view, I guess. Yes, sir. And really that, uh, you know, I don't want to be ambiguous about this. Okay. But, um, it really depends on what our estimated numbers are, which we, there's a Texas parks and wildlife has a formula um, because our tags come from the state. They issue our tags so they can kind of monitor this whole process, right? Make sure that we're, we're staying within our certain deer per acre ratio. Um, we have to do spotlight counts. We do helicopter counts, things like that. Um, and we send these numbers into the state and they kick it back and they say, okay, based on our formula, you have this many deer in this pasture, this many deer total on your place. And if that number gets too high, there's another opportunity for the state to come in and say, Hey, um, you guys are way overpopulated and we, we got to thin this herd out for you. And I'm sorry if the 255 inch deer walks out and it's, you know, it's a $10,000 or whatever it is, we're going to shoot it. Um, so that hasn't happened to us. It has happened. Um, it hasn't happened to us. So, so calling, um, or management practices are twofold. They're, they're a numbers game where we can make sure that our deer in our pastures are staying healthy. There's plenty of food for them. Um, we do have feeders, but, you know, deer are browsers, as you know. Um, so uh, there's, there's, that, there's that kind of bucket where we have to do those things just to keep our deer numbers in a healthy, sustainable population. And then there's obviously um, no different than how I grew up hunting or whatever or how you hunt. Um, you know, there's uh, maybe a, a four-year-old seven-point or a six or something that, that is, you know, not – not something you want in your genetic gene pool that needs to go. And, um, cause you don't want to breeding with, with your other deer, right? The, the, the bottom line is really, Dan, we, we, we need things to be harvested here to make money and we're in business to make money. Right. So, yeah. um, <clears throat> that's, I mean, that's a fact. So, yeah. so that's, that's where we, that's, that's our approach is it's really a two prong approach or three prong approach because, you know, and, and the kind of maybe the heading and all of that, is the conservation aspect. So it's all con it's conservation through hunting, you know, it's conservation through, through dollars. It's like when you guys were talking about the, the, the demand, um, if the demand is there, then, then you're going to do everything you can to make sure the supply is there. Okay. And if, if the demand is there and your supply is not there, then there's a lot of options out there and people are going to find a place where the supply is there. And it's no different with like a lot of the exotic African animals where some of these animals were saved in the world were saved, you know, here in Texas on high fence enclosures, um, uh, breeding operation enclosures 
because the demand for these animals from a hunting perspective was there. Um, and so people thought, Hey, if I can make a dollar on this, I need to keep, we need to keep these animals going and keep them breeding and, you know, and that, and that creates more supply. Yeah. I want to, I want to visit on the uh, exotic thing, uh, here in a second and, and have you elaborate on this, uh, you know, saving a couple Texas basically helped, um, save some of these animals from extinction, but I'm kind of going back to whitetail and the management practices, um, and, mentioning how the state of Texas still regulates you even though you are in a, um, a quote-unquote high fence. So could you elaborate a little bit about um, how the state of Texas actually puts their thoughts and ideas and, and I guess, rules and regulations on your, on your uh, ranch? Sure, yeah. Um, um so the state, uh, basically, like I said, we get our tags issued from the state, and that's called the MLD program, the Managed Lands um, Department program through the uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife, the state agency here. And um, in order to do that, we have we have got we don't have to do it. Um, it is voluntary. But if if we don't do it, then you're using personal tags um, when you come here and. You have, you know, you buy an out-of-state resident or non-resident hunting license in Texas, which you have to do anyway, and you're going to get issued, you know, two buck tags and five doe tags. And um, and so they came up with this way when these high fences started coming about uh, <clears throat> to help people manage, excuse me, to help people manage their, um, to manage their operation, to, to keep the numbers sustainable, to to keep um, um, the conservation aspect in mind um, on your on your ranch or your farm, and and so we participate in that program, uh, and it's it's really really good for us because I, I think that you know certainly we don't want to get into a discussion discussion about big government okay but um, if that if that didn't exist uh, and we were just kind of on our own out here and it is still the wild west out here and you had maybe the state was policing high fence operations and they hadn't come up with this idea to issue tags as long as you stay within these guidelines or whatever, then you would have places like ours um, where we, we, we have to sell so many deer. We only have so many personal tags in our pocket. You only have, we only have so many hunters coming through the gate and the population, it's going to be really, really bad for the deer, right? The populations are going to explode. They're going to get sick you know, all of these things. And so they, they came up with this um, MLD program. There's different levels. There was different levels to it up until two years ago. Now there's only two options. There's a conservation option and the harvest only option. The conservation option is based on your numbers. The harvest only option is based on um, an average amount of numbers for um, places like yours with your brows and your terrain and your acres, et cetera. Um, and so we participate in that program. And like I said, it's, it's very, it's very, very good for us, but we do have a bunch of rules and guidelines that we have to follow, and, and that's where the calling, you know, calling and the management, and they're really kind of holding your hand here. We have a biologist that lives down the road, Texas Parks and Wildlife biologist. He comes to the ranch four or five times a year. He helps us do our spotlight counts. We work very closely with him just to make sure that um, our populations are healthy, happy, and our numbers are right. Gotcha. All right, now I, I kind of want to jump to the CWD side of things um, because one of the reasons people get so fired up about these high fence operations is because they think it is an anything goes type of scenario as far as CWD, right? They don't care. Uh, you know, high fence operations are the, the devil because they spread CWD and all this kind of stuff. So why don't you just kind of from the, the, the mouth of the horse, talk to us about, um, what your ranch is doing to combat CWD. Talk a little bit about, um, your operation and, and how that kind of all ties in with the, the state of Texas. Sure. Sure. And I look, the, you know, I don't want to, you, you probably just gave me enough rope to hang myself there with because <laughs> you know, it's kind, of, kind of jokingly, but those, the rules are changing a lot. And I think, I, I think that everybody in the country is still trying to figure out um, a lot of what the CWD is and how it's spread 
and how, where it came from and, and, you know, things like that, what, you know, they can't pinpoint one thing and say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's high thing, it's breeding operations, boom, you know, um, that's where it starts. That's where it is, you know, well, is that true? Or is it a fact that, um, because those deer are isolated, that's how they found it. Meaning there could be tons of deer with CWD, I guess, in, in Western Kansas or Colorado, and you would never know, right? Because there's no, there's no guideline that says I, I go to Kansas with my bow and I harvest a buck and, um, or doe or whatever. And you take it, you get a process and boom, you know, it's, you, you would never know. And, and, um, uh, because of the high fence creates the opportunity to regulate, they regulate, right? Um, um, so the CWD stuff, what it means for us, um, again, it's, it's great. Cause we, we want to ensure that, that our deer are, are, you know, happy and healthy. Um, uh, we have to do a certain amount of testing every year. We go above and beyond that every year, just to make sure, um, you know, that, that our deer are, are healthy. Um, but I, I think that, like I said, I think that it creates, I think the high fence enclosure creates the opportunity for the regulation to happen. And I think that that's actually a good thing because I don't know, Dan, if they would have, we would, there was just no way we would have been as far along as we are with understanding what CWD is, understanding how it happens and why it happens and things like that. If it weren't for the, the, the pins or the, the high fence operations, because, you know, I voluntarily, I, I love what Mark said voluntarily, you know, he did some testing, um, and that's great, but it wasn't, he, he said, you know, there's not a regular, so it's not like, you know, cops or game wardens waiting out on the road when I drag my deer out to the road to my truck, you know, saying, Hey, you have to CWD sample that. Um, and I don't, you know, just think about the policing of that, of all the hunters in the country. And so I think that the, I think really, you know, operations like ours have helped, you know, carry the ball, push the ball to understanding more about what that means and what it is and where it comes from and how it comes, you know, to about. Okay. So, um, talk to us a little bit about then, you know, uh, this certification before we started recording, you said something about, um, the CWD certification that, uh, the lazy CK had to go through. Okay. So, um, and I'm going to get these levels wrong and somebody on your podcast is they're going to throw their phone or something when they're listening to it, because I, yeah, I always get these, you know, wrong, but, um, there's, 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 um, in Texas through the MLD program that I talked about where they issue our tags to us after our numbers come in. Yep. Um, uh, if you introduce deer onto your place, I'm going to say that you start at level one. Okay. Which means that every single animal that's harvested, you have to CWD test or they're going to shut your operation down. And then you move up to level two after, after you've been clean for so many years, you move up to level two and that means that you have to test a certain amount of deer every year, like the first 15 deer, the first 20 deer, depending on how many deer you have or whatever. And then you move up to level three, which means you've been certified clean for a certain amount of years and you don't have to CWD test anymore on your whitetail population, um, although you can. And, um, and as long as you um, transfer deer. And if we were going to transfer deer in and we're level three, now we don't actually have to CWD test anymore. Um, but if we wanted to transfer, if Dan lives down the road and has a deer breeding operation and he's level two and we, we, we want to introduce more genetics or even native genetics or typical looking genetics or whatever, and you're level two and we bring those deer in, that puts us back down to level two where we have to we have to test a certain amount of deer every year until we can get certified clean again. And we go, we go again. And so you, it's really hung some people in the state because they, they didn't really understand it in the beginning or the, the laws or rules changed in the beginning and they're still evolving just like the CWD stuff. And, and so they would buy deer from like a level one and they were a level two already. And then it pushed them back down to level one and they're like pissed, you know, um, but we are here at the lazy CK. Anyway, we're a hundred percent certified clean in all our passions. We don't have to CWD test anymore. Now we still do because like I said, it's very near and dear to our hearts to, to kind of maintain a level of, of professionalism within our industry, because whether you're hunting low fence 
in Iowa or hunting with dogs in Alabama, or you're hunting here in Texas with us. So we're all in the same business. Yeah. All right. So then I want you to talk about, let's say all of a sudden you get a, a positive hit, right? What happens? And I think what this is going to do is going to tell you how important it is for you to be clean, um, uh, CWD clean. What happens if you get a positive hit on your ranch? They're going to shut us down. They're going to shut. They're going to. They're going to shut the outmoon where deer can be harvested. That the state's going to come in, and they're going to start um, harvesting deer. Um, uh, you know, by themselves. Uh, we we don't get to choose. Uh, they're not going to pay you anything for the, those. The deer. The 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 populations are owned by the state. That's why it's part of the reason why we get our tags from the state, or your tags are issued from the state, even on your hunting license. Um, so private property, but the, but the animals are still owned by the state and those are their animals. Now we have the right to sell those animals and harvest those animals and things like that. But if we get a positive test, it's, it's basically a big containment area and, and it, and it could affect our neighbors as well. It could, they could say, um, Hey, you guys, you know, we, we noticed that when we were out there and, you know, you guys had a positive test. Um, that you had a hole in your high fence and we think the deer might've been moving back and forth. And so now we're shutting your neighbor down too, <laughs> you know, and so on and so forth. It's a really, really bad deal. And, and we're all out of a job and the place is for sale and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to wipe everything out and make sure that they can contain it. Right. Just like anything else, just like a, 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 a spill on the highway and they're shutting that whole thing down until the EPA can come in and it's a, it's the exact same thing. It's like worst case nightmare scenario. Right. And that in turn is why it, it's so important for you to follow the rules and regulations and maintain a clean bill of health. Absolutely. Yes, sir. And, and, you know, added to the fact that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a fact as well. So let me ask you this. Um, I don't know anything about this cause I'm not a biology, uh, professor major or whatever, but can CWD also affect the, the exotic herd that you guys have on your ranch? Well, I don't know the answer to that. I will tell you that the Texas animal health commission, um, and I don't know how they're all related or if there are, or if they're, or if they're, you know how there's like, um, like a thousand different kinds of, uh, sheep and goats in the, in the world, but they're all like somehow they're like cousins. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know that. Uh, I do know that the Texas animal health commission has, um, put, uh, and they've introduced and removed different species of animals, um, for CWD testing requirements on and off the list in the last few years. Um, so for instance, now we, we have to harvest or we have to CWD test, which all our staff is CWD certified, um, testing, um, guys, but we have to test the first three psycha, um, that are harvested on the ranch The you know, the Dabowski psychas that we have, or the red deer, the red stags, the red deer, we have to test the first three of those. Um, and I think there's a few other ones we have it, we have it in the office. We make sure that we maintain it, but, um, I don't know if it's transferable um, to other exotic animals. I just know that that they know, okay, and they they say yes. You got you guys now have to test the first three red deer and the first three psyca. And then sometimes I'm trying to think of an example of an animal that they had on the list and that they took off the list. But and I don't know how the I know that the psyca like some savers is psyca and the red deer. I know that they can cross. And so that makes sense to me. I know a whitetail and a red deer cannot cross. So I would say it's probably not transferable from a whitetail to like a red deer or a red deer to, you know, a whitetail to a psyche. Um, but I know that some of those animals can cross and will. And so then they're on the list too. Right. Okay. Well, I, you know, obviously uh, deer are native to Texas, um, but some of these other animals are not. How does how does that work? How does the exotic game work down there? Oh, that's a very broad question. Um, well, I, I think 
I think to understand that we really need to go back and we go back to the King ranch um, in South Texas, which everybody's heard of. And they, they start introducing Neil guy on their place. It's all low fence, but it's, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres, if not more. And, um, and they were saving them from zoos, um, from, from animals that were going to be euthanized or obviously the zoo says there's, you know, nobody wants to look at these things anymore or whatever. And, and their population started growing. And then they started darting some of those animals and shipping them back overseas to where they came from because they're popular because of poachers. And, and that's why their fences are going up because of poachers and the operation and the money that comes with the hunting. Um, and then Charles Schreiner at the YO2 was taking animals on his place. It's about two miles from us um, and introducing animals, you know, built the high fence and were kind of saving animals from zoos from San Antonio zoo and Houston zoo. And they were shipping them animals. And um, basically it all started like that, probably with a conservation aspect in mind. And then somebody looked up and said, Whoa, what do you, what do you mean, Dan from Iowa, you want to come down and, you know, you can't afford to go to Africa to hunt this plains game, this Gimsbach, but you'll come here and hunt it. That's great. Um, so, Hey guys, we need to do a better job of, of breeding these animals because there's a, there's a demand and it all started with the demand of the hunter. So really the hunters are the true conservationists. The hunters are the ones that are actually, whether they know it or not, they're the ones that are saving animals across the world. No question. Gotcha. Um, so I talked a little bit about how, uh, with one of the, uh, one of the guides there, but I talked a little bit about them about, it sounds to me like the exotic game is more of a, all right, we're going to be breeding. Um, I say this, but I also saw some young exotic animals on the ranch, like some fawns or whatever they're called, right? Of some, like some baby black buck uh, while I was there. Um, but is that more of a breeding, like, hey, we need to bring in uh, 10 more black buck this year so we have enough to fill the clients, you know, or is that natural just like the whitetail side of things? So it's both really. I mean, honestly, we, we breed, we, we breed as much as we can here. If you know, it obviously depends on supply. If we got into a situation where let's take the black buck for an example, we have thousands of black bucks. You saw they're everywhere. Right. Yeah. But if we got into a situation where we needed more supply, we could probably, we could, we could, you know, call our trapper who darts or drops nets or whatever on other places and bring these animals in. Could we do that? Yes. Do we do it? No, we don't need to because of our size. So um, the access breed and, and grow here, the black buck breed and grow here. Um, the wildebeest, the neogai, the centaur, all of those. Now, if we want to introduce a brand new species, obviously it depends on, you know, a whole bunch of factors, including supply. If we wanted to bring in, um, you know, a couple of years ago, we, we introduced um, some Thompson gazelles, but we buy females too. So we want to sustain our own populations. Okay. All right. Um, so I want you to tell uh, one of the stories, and I don't, I know it didn't happen on your ranch, but uh, about, man, was it, was it the Neil guy that they saved from China? Or was it the, the Pierre David? Pierre David. Okay, why don't you tell that story? Because I think that is a really good example of how, you know, Texas saved this animal from going into extinction. Yeah, and you really you covered you covered you covered all the nuts and bolts of that, and hopefully people will go back and listen to that because it was really good. And I, I'm not the one that told you that story. I actually know less about it than probably you do. I just know that. Um, that they were, I mean, they were considered extinct and uh, pretty much considered, like you said, there was like seven of them left in the world. And I think first though, I think they went to the UK and I'm pretty sure that they went to the UK and they started breeding there and trying to get the populations up there. And then they came to Texas and then it exploded obviously because of the land availability. Um, And, and literally they got moved off the um, extinct list after they came to Texas and, and other people were able to, to get different, you know, uh, animals in and breed them and, 
and to then start selling them to operations like ours or operations like, you know, everywhere else. And um, uh, the demand is there, but for a long, long time, and really even now, I'm not sure, I don't know this, but I don't know that you could go to China or Mongolia and, and hunt those animals there. If you want to hunt one, you're going to come here to hunt it. Um, it's the same thing. And I don't know this either, but see, Zach, Zach mentioned something about this, but when he first came here, he was looking around and he said something about the Simantar works were, were like that too. As a matter of fact, I think he said, you cannot hunt that animal in South Africa. Now I can't take you on a, on a, on a Simantar Horde works hunt. You ha- if you're going to hunt that animal, you have to come here to hunt it. And, um, I thought that was pretty, pretty neat too. Yeah. Pretty cool. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but some of the 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 herd here in for some species in Texas was flourishing so much that they decided to use the herd from Texas to try to reintroduce it into Africa, into where they used to live. Yeah, and so my neighbor, uh, I live about three and a half hours north of here. I come down every week and uh, I go home on the weekend usually, unless you guys are here, but um, my neighbor down the road where I live has a, a home built, um, high fence, uh, that, that he and his brother built in the early seventies. And he told me that, um, he would buy animals back then. He was buying animals from Africa and shipping them over here and breeding them here. And he said about five or six years later, and I don't know the specific animals I can ask him. Um, he's 80 something years old, still works every day. Uh, but he said that, Hey, they started contacting me and I started shipping them. I was doubling my money and shipping them back because, because they were running out because the poachers and the, you know, the, whatever the, the hunting demand was so high. It got so high over there in the late seventies and the eighties that, that they were actually asking for them back. Um, and so they were breeding them here, raising them here, shipping them home. And, um, uh, but uh, as far as, specifics of that I, I i can't tell you like exactly which animals those are i would i would assume the scimitar works if what i was told is true about um, you can't hunt them over there then, then i can guarantee you they're on a boat going back yeah yeah well i tell you what alan um i really appreciate you taking time to kind of um talk to us today but i want to give you kind of the last word and just maybe talk to us a little bit about any misconceptions that are still on the table or maybe why someone who is, I don't want to say against high fence, but maybe said, Hey, I'll never do this. Why they should consider it. Well, like I said, I think you hit the nail on the head. Just, you know, I, I never, like I said, I never, we never felt the need to, to carry the flag and say, Hey, you guys are wrong. You know, high fence hunting is great. This is the only way to do it. Blah, blah, blah. We never, we, we never set out with that goal in mind. What we did do, what we do, what we do every single day here and across high fence hunting operations in our area, at least is we try to offer a very unique experience. We want you to have a great time when you're here, have a, have an opportunity at least for a, a nice animal to walk out in front of you and, and to go home with a memory and a picture to hang on your wall. And, um, we just want people to, like you said, just give us a chance. If you think, if you think it's a canned hunt and you think that it's a guarantee, which I got to take that off our list. Uh, if you think, you know, that's going to happen, then get your bow or grab your rifle and come home with us and find out for yourself. Yeah. Anything else? Um, no, not that I can think of. Do you have anything else for, for me? No, man. I think, uh, I think we're good. I I really appreciate you, uh, taking time out of your day to hop on, uh, maybe clear the waters a little bit and, uh, talk about the lazy CK and, and Texas as, uh, as a whole. Yeah, I got to say, you know, and I told I told this to some of your other groups. We have large groups that come all the time, but man, that was, that was a blast when you guys are here. Oh yeah. Yeah. that was a lot of fun. I mean, I have, you know, if nothing else, the opportunity to meet guys like you and all the other guys that were here. I mean, I still have, besides you, I still have other people that are texting me still that were like, that was awesome. You know, that was incredible. Um, you know, it was, it was, that was a lot of fun. So we yeah. tell people that too. If you want to have a lot of fun, <laughs> we're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, and that's one thing that I said was despite 
what my feelings were towards this experience, I had an absolute blast. All right, man. Thanks for your time. All right, bud. Thank you. I just want to say thank you very much to Alan and the rest of the crew at the Lazy CK, man. Like I said, I had an absolute blast there. Loved the experience. It was very educational. It was very fun and entertaining at the same time. And like I said, learned a lot. Definitely learned a lot. Uh, Huge shout out to all the partners of this particular podcast, Hunter Safety Systems, Lone Wolf, Ripcord, Wasp, Ozonics, and Prime. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. I'm telling you, they're all good. Each and every one of the partners makes awesome products. Go check them out. Huge shout out to you. If you're listening to this right now, thank you. Please subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to the podcast. Can't talk right now. Subscribe to the podcast, uh, either the Nine Finger uh, Chronicle standalone feed or the Sportsman's Nation uh, feed as a whole would really appreciate your guys' support there as well keep an eye out for some giveaways that are going to be coming down the pipe uh, hint I'm going to be giving away a prime bow so uh, keep an eye out for how to I guess get into that and uh, other than that man our friends at Hunter Safety Systems are saying that if you're if you're going to be in a tree setting tree stands up please wear your damn safety harness have a good rest of the week <laughs>